0: You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Dan Crenshaw. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum.
1: It's a great honor today to be joined by Dan Crenshaw. He's a Lieutenant Commander, or was, in the United States Navy. He's now a Congressman from Texas. He completed five tours of duty in regions, including uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, He went back to America, he earned a degree from Harvard, and I think uh, from another university as well. He ran for Congress successfully in 2018. At the age of just 36, he's become one of the most recognisable Republican statesmen in America today, and makes regular contributions to public debate. He's also the author of Fortitude, American Resilience in an Age of Rage. So, Dan, uh, thank you again very much indeed. Can I ask you straight up front? You've had an outstanding career in the military. Uh, you're plainly capable uh, intellectually and as a writer. Uh, why politics? Why the Congress?
0: Well, that happened all of a sudden. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I, I don't think you guys said it right. I think you said lieutenant, it's a lieutenant of course, ah, sorry. To, to, I'm sure I'll have to correct your um, your your language skills uh, various times throughout this interview. Um, <laughs> uh, obviously, we have different ways of saying it. Uh, no, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, I always enjoy hanging out with uh, my Australian colleagues. I, uh, I have to make the same correction when I got to work with some Australian SAS uh, in Afghanistan. They were really great to work with. Um, I've still never been to Australia. Uh, Um, It's quite the flight, but man, I really want to go. I I hear nothing but great things. um, And I really enjoyed working with y'all out in Afghanistan. So uh, yeah,
1: yeah, y'all, we'd say that's a Texan expression, y'all. Yeah. You all come back.
0: Would you consider Australians to be sort of like British Texans? Is that, is that a a sort of a strange way of putting it? But I don't know. I can kind of see it a little bit of a rebellious
1: cowboy nature in Australia, but with a, with a funny accent. Well, uh, you know, they say everything in Texas is big until you come to Australia, you know, because <laughs> it's a very, it's a very vast country with only 26 million people, roughly the same geographic area as continental USA. Yeah. That's and good. we do say things differently. I had an American constituent. I was very, very fond of him. He came to us, Australia from California. Uh, and uh, we always used to tease him because if he didn't like something, he'd say, he wouldn't say it's a stupid idea. He'd say it was a stupid idea.
0: <laughs> the
1: well we're very direct.
0: Um so I guess okay, so let me get back to your uh question, uh what why politics? I mean, um, you know, it did happen all of a sudden. A I, I wanted to be back in policy, right? I never actually wanted to leave the military. Um, I was wounded in 2012. Uh, I, I believed, and my wife and I believed that we would that we would make a career out of the military. Uh, she came from a military family, so she was accustomed to the idea. I think of of being, you know, in that life uh, for decades to come. Um, it was an enjoyable life. I was stationed in San Diego, California, so uh, that's not bad. And um, and loved the people and loved the the job uh, most of the time. So you know, after I got wounded, I, I did not want to leave. Uh, we did a couple more deployments, um, kind of fought the system as much as I could. And, um, and uh, you know, wasn't able to deploy into combat again, but deployed nonetheless, and eventually medically retired in, in late 2016, decided a, a master's degree would be, you know, a good way to to transition to civilian life. Um, hence, you know, you mentioned uh, my my, my uh, master's at, at Harvard, uh, where I studied, studied policy, and um, knew that politics is where you go if you want to, if you want to um, impact uh, many different policies, then you pretty much have to get into politics because uh, that's the only way to do it. If you want to impact one policy, well, then you can work behind the scenes and work on that particular policy from from some angle. Um, I, I think that's the advice I would give the most young people looking into into government work, into public service. So that's one way of looking at it. Uh, but also, if you want to get bothered to get into politics at all, you need some kind of pathway into it. And I had no pathway into it. You need to be rich. You need to know rich people or you need to have a really uh, unique window of opportunity. And uh, one day, uh, my uh, my hometown congressman announced retirement unexpectedly. And uh, some, you know, I just happened to be kind of in the right room at the right time where somebody pointed it out because I wouldn't have even noticed. I, I don't I didn't follow politics. I wouldn't have noticed that somebody even announced retirement or even thought about it. It was just not where my head was at, but a a little push, um, you know, and then me and my wife decided to move into my parents' uh, upstairs game room and start a campaign.
1: Well, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are very glad that they did. One difference between Australia and America that often strikes us is you, people will say, oh, no, you're wrong. It's, uh, It's not the case, but it is true. You don't have to be wealthy to make it in Australia. You've just got to get yourself into the right place with enough passion. Uh, and fortunately, as yet, you don't have to be a, a multi-millionaire to make it in Australian politics. Um, but um, there's a sense in which I think, uh, and I make this observation to a former SAS officer in our own parliament in Australia, uh, when he says politics is frustrating and difficult, I say, you stop and think about this. Where would you like to be at the moment if you're a warrior, if you want to make a difference? We're really uh, at a, at a point in history, it seems to me, where... In the West, we face enormous military challenges externally and other challenges, economic, trade, et etc. et cetera. But we also have enormous internal conflicts going on and it's an important battlefront to be on the front line of. We are in a struggle for the very soul and being of Western freedom and democracy, it seems to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I talk about the culture war, often that's really what um, 2020 is about here in the US um, and I imagine a lot in, in in many parts of the world um, there there are two different visions for how a society should be structured uh, whether what freedom means what equality means what justice means and, and you know th- these are these are terms that maybe classical liberals might take for granted um, Classical liberalism being defended in America by conservatives and and I and I think destroyed by the left, um, and the, these terms mean something in the classical sense, and I think they're being redefined um, in an, in a, in the wrong direction and in an unfortunate way, and um, so the, this really boils down to the culture. Do we have a culture of rights? Do we have a culture that that values freedom, that values limited government, limiting principles? or that simply wants things and will do anything to get power to get those things. And those things can be redefined rather radically because there's no limiting principles. And to me, that's what the left stands for. Um, it's, it's It starts off with good intentions, well-intentioned liberalism. is a good balance to strict conservatism, um, but it, it is ultimately corrupted, always, eventually, uh, by, by more socialist tendencies. And it's up to... Uh, you know, it's up to the, you know, the the guardians of, of culture and our education system to teach people the foundations of what makes a country successful, um, based on Western civilization and and enlightenment ideals. Is there, you I, I think, um, I like, I like the way Thomas Sowell puts this, uh, in his political philosophy, the constrained and unconstrained visions. And, um, we can get into a lot of detail on that, I think, but it, you know, it basically means, the unconstrained vision, which is is mostly manifested in the left, uh, essentially believes that human nature can be formed by by government uh, endlessly. Uh, that an endless you know a, amount of power can be given to some elites, that they can reason their way to basically any outcome. And the constrained vision has a has a much more tempered view of that, believing in limited principles, believing that you know the the structures of our institutions can can limit the worst tendencies of human nature to an extent. Um, but that uh, but that the, the freedom of the individual must be preserved. So, you know, and in, 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 in within that, there's different definitions of freedom and equality and justice. And uh, we, have to, we have to understand that if we're gonna understand our our political opponents and understand what the culture war is that we're actually fighting uh, in, in 2020, which is different than, than political battles of the last couple of decades. We didn't disagree all that much on a lot of this stuff, I think in the past, like the way we do now.
1: Yeah, I, I take your point, and it's much the same across a lot of the West. It's just that <laughs> what happens in America is unbelievably important because of its size, its power, its uh, predominant role on the globe, but also because in so many ways American culture is still exported around the Western world. Well, what is it that you are now exporting? You mentioned human nature there in the context of uh, the battle of ideas between those who are constrained, those who would be left or if, if, you could, if I could put it to you this way, I think one of the most appealing aspects of conservatism to me personally, which has been proven, I think, by history time and time again in a way that it can no longer be denied, is that human nature does not change. We always have a propensity uh, to, uh, if you like, uh, uh, do the wrong thing in some areas of our lives, every one of us and a propensity to try and be noble and to lift ourselves in another part. What doesn't change though is our underlying nature. And it seems to me to be unbelievably naive to attempt to deny that. History is simply not with you, but we discount history. And there seems to be a major attempt to rewrite history in American education as well. How, how has America lost, lost grip on real history? Oh, yeah. So that's exactly right. So we believe human nature is
0: fixed and that the government's role is to create processes and incentives um, and limitations so as to to guide this flawed human nature towards the best outcomes. So we're we're primarily concerned with process. We're primarily concerned with the how we solve problems. This is extremely important as as being a conservative. Um, the, The left does believe that. That human nature can be legit, like you said, legislated into perfection. And this causes them to have sort of a utopian ideal um, and take extreme action when they see problems. Uh, I view that as as totally unsustainable. and I, and I, and, I, and 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 I think that's borne out in history, how it's totally unsustainable, and how it leads, to, and, and they're not concerned with second third order consequences or, or anything of the sort. And I think this is it is a very problematic way of problem solving. So that's again that's that's sort of the basis of how we see these things. And this is how it's playing out right now. Let, let me just give an example. In the in the in the conversation about systemic racism. So there's this belief on the left that there's systemic racism. The conservatives turn around and say, "Okay, well, where is it?" Um, that that means something to me. That means my institutions are systemically racist that there's some kind of law or rule, or something wrong with the process, which is which is actually um, going going against our notions of, of neutrality and equality under the law. So okay, let's find those because we don't like that. Um, we had a whole civil rights movement to to stop that. You know, we've, we fought wars because of this this simple notion of equality. And um, but then they say, well, it's not it's not exactly in the institutions. It's like you know, it's within you. You can't really see it. It's, you know, it's your, it's your, it's your internal bias. It's your implicit bias. It's all this, you know, you're, you're, you're racist, but you don't know it, you know? And we're like, wait a second. Okay, hold on. And so, and so you can never find it, right? You're always, you're always chasing ghosts and and then they make the argument, well, because you can't find it, you can't see it, but trust us that exists. So we have to reform the institutions to be unequal in order to create equality. And this is, this is where it goes off the rails. Um, and this is, um, as I've noticed, I think we're exporting that that notion a little bit. Um, granted, it was exported into the United States from Europe. Okay, so I'm not going to take total blame for for America exporting it now, because this has this obviously this has roots in Germany and and Marxism as well. So, you know this this is this goes back to to a long history. Well, it has roots in the French Revolution, as as you just mentioned, right? This this notion that you can start from 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 ground zero. Um, not take into account any of the collective knowledge that we've obtained over thousands of years it's, it's hard to explain what that collective knowledge is but it's it's formed in our cultures and traditions and relationships and they don't believe in that anymore they, they believe in the cult of reason in the French Revolution and that they can that they can reason their way to perfection right away um, and it doesn't end well. It ends in the French terror or in, in, in our case here in the United States, it ends in Chaz, which is, you know, what you saw in Seattle, where these people were basically acting as French revolutionaries, believing that they can start anew in their own little utopia. And it always ends in disaster, just like it did in Chaz. I don't know if you're familiar with Chaz, but it's, that's a whole other story. Uh, they basically created an autonomous zone in yes. the middle of Seattle. Um, and they look like a bunch of clowns. Uh, and it's easy to make fun of them, but it is dangerous. It is dangerous to see this this sort of ideology welling up. And there's nothing on the other side of that revolution except terror. Um, and that's I think that's what we have to show people and demonstrate to people, and, and show them how even even the even when you just tinker with these basic foundations of what equality means, justice means, what law means, all of these, when you just even start to mess with them it does lead to this, because once you've opened Pandora's box, you can't put
1: these things back in. Seems to me that one of the deepest ironies and most troubling aspects of uh, Chaz and other uh, attempts to uh, defund police and what have you, is that if you really look at where the violence is happening and you really look for where people need help, you'll often find, as I understand it, the most common calls for help from the police come from black women. In difficult communities uh, wanting protection from violence in their own local circumstances. How does defunding, declawing, attacking police help them?
0: Yeah, it's it's disastrous on many fronts. So so first of all, this is sort of the white liberal Marxist types calling for the defund the police. And and of course, like the extremists in the Black Lives Matter community calling for that too. But I think something like 60 to 80 percent of of probably closer to 80% of black, black people polled will say, of course, we don't want to defund the police, that's nonsense. I, I saw Al Sharpton recently saying, hey, that's great for white liberals to say, but that's not what our communities need. When, when, when they've gone too far left for Al Sharpton, uh, that, 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 that's, a, that's a sign that this, this movement is based in something much darker and much deeper than just, and has almost no association with any kind of civil rights. Um, it's it's purely revolutionary in its nature, and they mean defund the police. I mean, these radicals go out there; they mean it. Uh, they they are not satisfied with moving some funding around. They're not satisfied with cutting hours. They mean it. They mean abolish it. They these are these are pure anarchists. These are anarcho-fascist communists, as I like to call them, and that's not a contradiction. Um, they engage in fascist tactics. They want anarchy. To, in order to create crisis, to justify the revolution, to create communism. This is, this is what they want. So it's more of a pathway than it is a, a particular label in time, um, but that is their ideology. The other reason is problematic. So, so set those crazy white liberal Marxists aside and they, and they usually are crazy white liberal Marxists, you know, antifa and those types. Set them aside though, it, and then you know, it, that, that language though of defund the police and systemic racism within the police, it does manifest into really problematic behavior outside of those circles, um, just in whether in criminal circles or just in in these some of these minority communities, and you see that when our cops are being assassinated on the streets. So a young mother shot in the face, she's a cop, 31 years old in Los Angeles, um, and her partner, I think 24 year old man, shot in the face. Um, why? Because because somebody tried to go up and assassinate them. So this guy who did it believes in this rhetoric. You know, I don't think he's a I don't think he's a Marxist. I don't think he's any idea what Marxism even means. But he does hear the rhetoric and he does hear that he's being hunted down by cops. You know, so this is and this is where I this is where I call out my Democrat colleagues. They're saying this kind of thing. They're saying, hey, you're systemically oppressed. There's systemic racism in the police force. These this is playing with fire. These are dangerous terms. If something is truly systemic, it means it means you have to fight it. That's yep. what it means. It means you have to abolish it or fight it. Because that's what it would mean to me. If you tell me I'm systemically oppressed, truly, then you've disempowered me. And the only way for me to gain back my power is to fight you. And so don't be surprised when people are doing this kind of thing. So so I, I, I call out my the other side, You know, the, the, the who, who, you cannot say in the same breath you're being systemically oppressed but also looting and rioting is bad. I'm sorry, but it doesn't work that way. Because once you've told somebody and convince them of their oppression you better expect them to fight you know hell that is the american way after all but the problem is is it's based on an untruth there there is the, the police are not hunting anybody this is just not true this and we could we could go into, into the statistics behind it all day long um, it's not persuasive to people um, who already believe it because narratives yeah. and storytelling matters uh, quite a bit. And, and And the leaders who do know better need to be more responsible with how they talk about this because they're getting people killed.
1: There's no doubt that black lives matter. I mean, they, they, you, know, you can simply assert it is true that they've been fast and loose with the facts and with the truth. Uh, no doubt about that at all. But if we can come now to you're in an election, Uh, We're watching this very closely in America because, as often as said in this country, uh, American elections are are as important for us, frankly, and their outcomes can be as important for us as our own selection of our governments and prime ministers in this country. Uh, What's coming is, it seems to me, to be extraordinarily important. Now, you've approached this with an admirable set of insights about beliefs and values and where people sit on the political spectrum. where would you put the two contenders for the White House on the political spectrum? You know, left versus right. I mean, but you wouldn't really call the current president particularly committed to a philosophical view. Uh, he's more a pragmatist, even a deal maker, a very unusual character, probably the product of a divided America as much as the cause of it today, I would have thought, if I can say that from this side of the world, uh, versus a man who seems to move all over the chessboard in terms of his position and who couldn't necessarily be classified as a a normal left of centre Democrat uh, alternative for the White House. How do we understand these two figures? Because what we get in Australia is the Trump derangement syndrome dominating in the media. It's anything but Trump. So they don't examine. We're not hearing very much in the Australian media of the truth about where Biden and all the people who are with him would want to take America, and what that might mean for the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, and they don't talk about it either because they know that their platform is is not popular uh, with Americans, and I don't think it would be popular with Australians either. I mean, what would be of concern to you guys? Obviously, are you know how tough we are on China, um, our, our willingness to, uh, to to maintain presence and in, in military relationships, uh, diplomatic relationships in the Pacific. I don't think Biden would retract in any way, but I, I do think um, he he would certainly take a much softer tone with China, um, you know, and, and probably and probably default back to kind of the traditional Washington think tank academic idea of China of, you know, kind of just playing a middle ground, um, which was which is it, it was fair to be tricked by China for a while. But I think the awakening of, of tri- China's true intentions have have to be. Have to be out there in the open, and and Trump is much more um, bold of, about making those kind of statements and uh, and uh, making those kind of deals. So that that's a pretty key difference there. Um, I, I agree with your assessment of our current president. He's not going to have a a, a a philosophical discussion of conservatism with you. <laughs> that's just not that's not where he comes from. Um, he does happen to govern that way. He does happen to to make those decisions in in accordance with those values. Um, according to his instincts, but for him, it's more instinctual than it is um, than it is, uh, you know, philosophical or the, uh, yeah, I mean, he he supported Democrats in the past. He supported Republicans, um, and so, you know, it's th- that is all true. Um, but his his governance has been highly conservative. Um, he's taken our priorities and really ran with them. And uh, you could argue that's because it's, you know, it's his team and he wants to win for his team. Um, He's he's he takes his campaign promises extremely seriously. That's what's the one thing you've noticed over the last four years. Um, He's been an extremely honest president uh, in in that regard. Uh, Now, of course, what you hear from the media is he's told more lies than any human being in the history of human beings. Um, you know, yeah, he, he speaks extremely, he, streaks, he speaks in absolutisms, he speaks, um, you know, uh, sometimes carelessly. And that's where those. that's where these lies come from, but they're often, when you actually dive deep into the fact checks, they're often very silly. Um, so as far as big campaign promises and policies, uh, he's, he's, he's been very forthright with what he wants to do, I'm very bold about that. With Biden, you don't hear anything about policy these days, and that's interesting. Um, because he has r- very radical people on his um, on his policy agenda councils, uh, whether it's on energy or um, or the economy, he's got modern monetary theorists on the econ- on the economy uh, uh, advisory board. He's got AOC on the energy board. This is this is not good either for the environment, uh, ironically, or for uh, American energy and jobs, and um, on, a, on a number of fronts. Uh, You know this is not good policy. And and as as you noted, he's been a chameleon. Um, Many Democrat leaders are. The the Democrat Party has changed radically uh, just in the last few years. So they, and, and again, why? Fundamentally, because they don't have limiting principles. And we talked about this briefly before. The left doesn't have limiting principles. Now, they would say that their principles and their values are fighting injustice and fighting inequality. If I'm being fair to them, I think that's what they would say. Those aren't limiting principles though right there's no how there's no how you actually um uh, obtain these goals and that's a problem it means you can change everything and they have radically um it's how you can go from being strong on on actual borders and illegal immigration to to advocating for for the complete opposite um it's how you can switch like that and uh, i think it's problematic and um you know it's i'm, I'm not a fan of it <laughs> to, to be Be perfectly
1: honest. Yeah, Um, to me, I was part of a reforming government, and um, we set out to obliterate all federal government debt, and succeeded to do that. And as I look today around the world, I am truly staggered. I'm I'm left without words to describe the concerns I have about the blowout in Western indebtedness, private, corporate, but particularly government and I think the US is headed towards 27 trillion. It doesn't seem to be the subject of any serious debate. I know COVID's blown it out again. Uh, The economies, I think, right across the world will be, broadly speaking, very, very slow to really pick up and recover afterwards. It is a real issue. You know, uh, as one of your founding forefathers said, you want to enslave a nation, you can do it militarily, or you can do it with debt. Where is the discussion about America's economic recovery? Because actually it was doing quite well until COVID hit. And the way in which it's handled coming out of it will be critically important. I would have thought uh, the, the sort of uh, AOC uh, approach, um, uh, the, the, the influence uh, of that lady in particular uh, uh, in America of, of simply printing more money effectively, just manufacturing more money will be a disaster and that most Americans would see that.
0: You would think um, people, you know, people do not care enough um, about that. And it's and it's there's probably some reasons for that. You know, to, to solve a debt crisis, you need a culture that actually wants to. Um, and unfortunately, over the years, we've we've continued to attempt to buy votes with with false promises. Um, you know, hey, what about this new entitlement that you deserve? And uh, once you have it, it's very hard to reel that back. Yeah. Um, so our debt, in particular, is is primarily driven by those entitlements, uh, especially for our seniors. So Social Security and Medicare. When you have an aging population um, and increasingly a higher uh, benefit increases, you know, it's it's a recipe for disaster. this is this is what's causing the the debt crisis in a lot of countries. And the problem with the crisis is you don't know it's a crisis until it happens. So this is the other reason that people have, have continued to whistle past the graveyard is because they say, well, well, you said at 30 percent debt to GDP ratio, it was going to be bad. And then we got to 50 percent and then we got to 70 percent, 80 percent, 90 percent. And, you know, is it really doesn't seem to matter. Inflation isn't increasing. it um, well, Seems like we're fine. Maybe we're in a sort of new monetary reality. Um, yeah. But of course, that's playing with fire. And uh, it, it it goes against all reason and and logic uh, that this and is history. possibly sustainable. Yeah, in mm-hmm. history, um, you know, it's somewhat more sustainable when we're the when we're the underlying currency of the world, but but not forever. And uh, yeah, we absolutely have to have that conversation. And um, you know, political opportunism gets in the way too. If I, if I want to have a conversation about entitlements in America, um, Democrats immediately accuse me of trying to hurt old people. I mean, it it becomes an emotional conversation instead of a a
1: policy conversation. Exactly the same here. And you mentioned entitlements. I remember being on Australia's Budget Committee, just five of us, charged by the the Prime Minister with the job of obliterating debt. And the problem is that very little government expenditure now is discretionary. That is to say, most of it's locked in in the form of entitlements. If you're in a certain category, you reach a certain age, you have a certain problem, you are entitled. And that's nearly impossible to wind those things back. But to come to the pointy end from where I sit in Australia at the moment in relation to America, you're a military man. Uh, The American military might has stood behind a peaceful global order. I mean, all right, you can criticise around the edges and people do. And the left tries to mount arguments about uh, moral equivalency and what have you uh, between uh, Western democratic countries and the rest or others. We don't live in um, those times anymore. We need to know that America is militarily strong. Uh, You're a military guy. What what is your perspective? And how capable and ready is the American military in your view at the moment? Because in a debt laden economy going forward, the temptation will be to find discretionary expenditure savings in defence.
0: Um, I, I'm not that worried about it. the 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 defense top line bill usually gets through. Um, you know, you're, we're usually arguing over twenty or thirty billion dollars, which it seems like a lot, but we're talking about a seven hundred and fifty billion dollar top line for defense, so it, it, it's it's not all that much. Um, you know, the the question is, you know, where where to put resources, where to spend time, where not to spend time. Um, where to invest, and over the last couple of years, there's been a much bigger investment in the military, and research and development, in cyber, in, in um, and cyber, and innovation, and and maintenance that had long gone um, underutilized. Uh, modernization of our of our nuclear triad, you know, including submarines and bombers. Um, you know, these things are important for deterrence. I know they, you know, they they make you know kind-hearted liberals hair stand about on the back up of their neck, but um, but they mean something in the real world, and uh, it's the only language that the Iranians speak. It's the only language that the Chinese speak, and the North Koreans speak. is Is deterrence. Uh, this is the big lesson that that Trump brought forth versus Obama. Obama had a had a foreign policy and a campaign slogan called "Hope and Change," and um, it doesn't work. You can't pay Iranian Ayatollahs off and hope they're going to hope they're going to change. It's just not how it works. You can't, you can't give moral credibility to Hamas and believe that they're just going to make peace in the Middle East. No, you have to engage with leverage and deterrence. And um, and that's exactly what Trump's uh, take on the Middle East was. And that's why you're seeing these massive and, and incredibly historic peace deals in the last few weeks. Um, now, there's been a long time coming. It's Again, it's It's not that that President Trump is some amazing strategist uh, who's been studying this for years. It's just that his instincts are correct. You think he understands the basics, which is deterrence and leverage matter quite a bit. And uh, he understands how relationships work. And so putting ourselves in that position, making a very strong stance against Iran, a very strong stance with Israel, it it, it created a dynamic uh, that allowed this peace deal to happen. And um, it, it's very impressive to see, frankly.
1: One of our leading journalists in this country, a very, very perceptive man, made the observation that if if, if Donald Trump were anybody but Donald Trump, he'd be on the way to a Nobel Peace Prize for his achievements. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what happens if you war game the two possibilities in November? Trump wins. The Democrats have spent years hyperventilating, ramping up the hyperbole to the point that it's just almost hysterical about how he's breaking America, democracy's collapsing and so on and so forth. That's one scenario. How does that play out? On the other hand, Biden wins and many people who were Trump supporters because they believed that political correctness had reached the point where it was crippling the nation. I mean, you've got to remember Trump was an outsider even for the Republicans. How do you war game the two possible scenarios when you look on, as I do, as somebody who admires your country hugely and is deeply concerned about the divisions? How will they play out? And then I'd love to come to your own personal approach, which I find commendable in terms of how we might deal with one another in the future. But but how, how might it play out if one side wins versus the other as you see it?
0: Yeah, I mean, if Trump wins, um, you're, you're going to see the continued hysteria from the left. Um, I, I don't know. I don't. I wonder how they'll change strategies because obviously Trump can't run for re-election at that point. So maybe they might go for impeachment again. I mean, they they really they there's there's true derangement syndrome. They truly hate him, um, and they will do anything to to get rid of him. They 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 have rationalized these beliefs. I mean, this whole tearing down of democracy and and, and so on and so forth. They really do believe it. You you know, in private. So, um, and I believe they believe it. Now, again, I I think it's hysteria that has that that they've and they've rationalized these sort of false narratives um, into something real, and that's that's why that's how they can justify some of the extreme tax that they've taken. I think the impeachment was an extreme thing to do. I mean, I think they've been planning it all along, um, and we're just trying to and they and they're very good at playing in the intelligence world where where they know that we can't uh, say what we know because we know it's classified and they play in that world very well. They tried to do it recently with some other issues. Um, and that's what they did with impeachment. That's what, they've, that's what they have did with the Russian collusion hoax. And it was a true hoax. And this was the true scandal is that the last administration um, abused its power knowingly. And we know this now, this stuff is coming out slowly, but it's just, it's too complicated for people to absorb. Um, but, but, you know, these FISA warrants, these, these, well, FISA means, you know, basically a surveillance warrant that's secretive, um, (laughs) was given based on totally false premises and, um, knowingly so. So, I mean, there's just some really bad stuff that happened, uh, that just, that the media just won't cover fairly. Um, so, so my, my point is, is that more of the same if Biden wins, I think, um, or sorry, if Trump wins, uh, if, if Biden wins, I, and I think I think Trump supporters will feel feel extremely disenfranchised. They will feel that yeah. this was a very unfair election. They will feel like their guy was hammered for for years unfairly, and I think they'll be right. Um, uh, and and it would and here, but here's here's the really the scariest scenario if if these because because some states are playing with fire with this universal mail-in ballot idea some swing states. It's not a big, deal. you know, if California wants to do it, it's always going to go Democrat. It's not a, that's not it's not going to change the course of the election, but these swing states and these Democrats that run these swing states are knowingly doing this. They're putting out universal mail ballots. So what does that mean? It means it means if you're a registered voter, we mail you a ballot and you mail it back and that's your vote. Okay, now, now to to a typical person, you're like, "Okay, that seems fine." I mean, what, what's wrong with that? Well, lots wrong with that. Because it's impossible for the state to possibly get that right, it's impossible. And you know this if you ever block walked, um, you know, here in America. I'm sure you guys do the same thing. You, can't, you generally you have a list of addresses, you have a list of names, and okay, this person lives here, they're registered Republican, and then I, you know, I go and knock on their door and say, hey, vote for so and so. Plenty of times it's the wrong person at the door. Not a big deal. Move on to the next one. But that actually does mean something if you're just going to randomly mail out ballots. It means that mistakes can be made and fraud can occur. The Democrats always come back and say, well, it's such a small percentage. It's basically insignificant. That's that's a terrible argument, considering that our elections are won by very, very tiny margins, oftentimes, even even tens of votes. So it's a huge deal. And it's an even huger deal when we're such a divided country. If we're going to be a divided country and somebody's going to win or lose, you have to be able to say, you know what, I really don't like that you won, but I know that you won by the rules. And if you can't say that, if we feel that the rules are in question, this is, this is a cause for massive unrest. And I'm, I'm very worried about that. I can't believe these states are so irresponsible as to do what yeah. they're doing.
1: That's, yeah, you've just confirmed my worst fears. Uh, it's seem to me to be potentially a, a real tinderbox. Uh, And it's worth remembering that in terms of the Democrats, as I recall it, you may have a different perspective, but um, as I recall it in the contested election between Gore and Bush, in the end, Al Gore was quite gracious about it, accepted the results and the way in which he handled it meant that the Australian, the American people accepted that result. I'm not so sure that where America's at today, that'd be so straightforward.
0: Yeah, and that's simply because of what I just described. I, again, if, if we just had simple, agreeable rules around voting, um, you know, I, I tell people this all the time. Okay, if you were to start your own new country, there's no political parties yet, and you're like, okay, wait, how how should we elect people? Okay, we should we should we should make sure the person is the person, right? Yeah, yeah, that should be definitely be a rule. Okay, uh, for some maybe some kind of ID might be in order. Uh, and then we would and then we would also want to make sure that we know that they just voted and maybe we can see them. So vote in person unless you have some, uh, you know, really good reason why you can't. Right. Maybe you're bedridden or whatever it is. You know, we have we have ways to deal with that. Like We have mail in voting in America, obviously absentee uh, mailing, but you have to apply for that with an ID and then you get your ballot. So there's a confirmation process that a verification process that actually occurs there. You know, th- this is this is common sense. Right. The institutions matter quite a bit. Um, especially in a divided country, and uh, it's just and then this com- this conversation has gotten very confusing. People are confused by it. The president's like, no mail-in voting, and people are like, oh god, should I not mail in my ballot? Well, th- that's not what he means. He means the the practice of universal mail-in ballots. Um, but it's uh, it, I, I just can't imagine why we'd want to play with fire and 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 you know put doubt
1: in the actual rules of the game. That's a terrible idea. To come to those institutions in a moment, but before I do, uh, I was greatly struck by an interchange that you had recently that I uh, read about, where you made the point that it's incredibly important to try and avoid giving offence, and even more important, not to take offence, which seems to me to be a model that you live by. Given that so many of the differences in America are not philosophical but personal and nasty, uh, almost the Arthur Brooks sort of uh, scenario where he draws um, on on the marriage counselling sort of idea that if you combine anger, and and, and on the surface of it, America looks angry, with disgust, um, you get contempt. And when people start to talk to one another contemptuously, It's almost impossible to restore the relationship. But you commendably have said that it's really important to not only try and avoid giving offence, but to double down on not taking offence. I think that's admirable and surely something that every American ought to try and emulate and pick up. Where did you learn the importance of not taking offence? It's almost sort of, you know... uh, take a slap on one side of the face and be prepared then offer the other the sort of the christian injunction to not take offense
0: yeah i mean i come from the seal teams and, and uh anybody who's maybe you know played sports or been in the military knows uh how dark our humor is and how thick-skinned you must be uh to, to survive in such a, a place so uh the, the, there's there's a background for it i suppose um that that i actually would when, when i wrote that in my book and i that was my comment after the whole snl p davidson thing uh, I was stealing that quote from uh, a Harvard professor that I'd had, who, who was giving that talk to uh, the class as they were doing orientation, and um, I thought it was just so insightful and so simple and so perfect for a college campus. Try hard not to offend people while you're here. Try even harder not to be offended. All right, it's a, it's a good rule to live by. You know, don't don't look for the the implicit microaggression in somebody's voice or words. Now. Now, these days in politics, it's pretty obvious that, um, the, you know, the, when people are talking about me, it's an overt uh, aggression, not an implicit microaggression. Uh, but but there's a clear difference. And it's it's usually easy if if you keep your wits about you and you keep your emotions, um, you know, locked down to an extent, it's pretty easy to tell the difference. So don't look for offense just because you you perceive them to be attacking you or evil. And also try try to put things out in a way um, where you where people don't feel like you're attacking them, you're just simply disagreeing with them. Now, that's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. I mean we're in a, you know heated battle, political battle all the time. but I do try not to question somebody's intent and character or insult them um, when I'm when I'm hammering their ideas. Um, and also try not to build straw man arguments, either. Uh, this is a part of just general argumentation. And I think one of the reasons I've been successful is because I do confront I do confront them directly. I conf- confront their ideas directly. Don't talk past them. And I think oftentimes in politics, it's, I think, lazy intellectualism. People talk past each other. And um, it's important to confront their ideas directly because I think they're wrong. I'm going to say so very forcefully, you know. So, so you, you nobody would ever assume that I'm not a fighter for conservatives because like I'm known to be. So this is this doesn't mean I just say hey, you know, everybody's a little bit right and a little bit wrong, and you know we can just come to compromise. That's not me, you know. I, I think they're wrong, uh, but there, but there's a way to also acknowledge their humanity uh, in, in common yeah. um, and common Americanism, and 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 you know, but but still call them out. So I'm you know I'm, I'm a vicious fighter but, but I'm not, but I'm not going below the belt either. And I think that, so it's a pretty low standard that I'm setting here. Uh, but unfortunately the the, the tenor of, of, of American politics is well beyond that standard. And it's trying to destroy personally the other person. And um, you know, that's just, that's just the reality
1: of, of where it is. Yeah, it's a very important distinction. Uh, you fight the ideas and I, Used to sometimes say in our parliament, there's nothing wrong with a very robust debate in this place. The more robust, the better. If people care passionately about their ideas and their view of the world, then they ought to be prepared to flog it out to the till the last man standing. The issue is to avoid the personal, the personal denigration, the personal attack, and to recognise, uh, uh, you know, that that shared humanity. I, I take that point entirely. Um, can I just come then to something you said a moment ago at a time of distrust uh, and of breaking down of social fabric in many ways, it's more important than ever to respect the institutions of a free society, to keep that machinery working. And yet um, recently the Cato Institute published a survey that it had carried out showing that 62% of Americans think the current political climate prevents them from sharing their political views. 50% of strong liberals support firing Trump donors from their jobs. 77% of conservatives feel they have to self-censor, as opposed to around 50% of centralist liberals. And it seems to me that you've got this great problem now that you've got a breakdown of confidence in one another's goodwill, but also in our institutions. So that strength that has always marked Americans where they've at least respected the office, if you like, and respected the institutions that undergird freedom. Is under attack as well. How do you restore some degree of confidence in them? Yeah, well, you know,
0: there's two, two separate um, problems there. One is the the censorship, the cancel culture problem, uh, which again, primarily, conservatives are the are the targets of. We, we we can try to cancel Netflix all we want; it has no effect. Uh, And so so I don't I don't take it that the left will always say, well, both sides, you always try to cancel each other. That's just not true there. We have no power to cancel anything. Um, The left has all the power um, when it comes to these institutions. So there's cultural institutions and political institutions. um, And there's distrust in both Uh, the cultural institutions. Let's say, you know, the NFL, the NBA, uh, comedy. Uh, Hollywood, um, our our newspapers, our publications, and and mainstream media, uh, media especially has very low approval ratings, lower than Congress. Imagine that. Um, so hey, Congress gets a win, uh, but, uh, but 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 deservedly so. They deserve those low approval ratings. The problem is, is they're still highly influential. Um, yeah, low approval ratings, but the but the, whatever they're saying still is pervasive throughout the narrative because social media has kind of taken over. And the influencers on social media on either side still take their cues from these from these uh, untrusted organizations, and then they're they're sort of regurgitated in a more trusted voice because you know it's just it's just a person um, talking on YouTube. So I, I still see their influence. Um, our educational institutions have been corrupted vastly. Uh, we've lost those to the to, you know the Marxist radicals of the '60s as they as they as they were told they were ordered to put away their communist their their communist um party uh membership cards and and join academia um the long march to the institutions has has long been a a marxist ideal then there's political institutions um or government institutions which uh yeah i mean i think trust and just in general when when people just don't like what they see around them you know they'll 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 mark don't trust i think on 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 a survey right it's I, I, I don't think this. I, I don't. I think we overthink it if if we if we try to, um, you know, try to analyze what exactly about the Department of Energy don't people trust anymore. Um, now it's it's just a general political sentiment. I, I think is is what's happening there, um, and uh, of course the conservatives have long uh, distrusted uh, government institutions. So you know that's why we want them to have less power and be more limited. And it always strikes us as strange that our liberal friends will always distrust government institutions as well, but only if they're not in power of them. That's a key difference, same with patriotism. If you you survey Republicans and Democrats, uh, Democrat patriotism uh, only only starts to tick up when they're in power and it ticks way down when they're not in power. I find that very problematic. Uh, Conservatives, Republicans uh, are, are basically about the same. No matter who's in power, they still say, no, I love my country no matter what. Um, that's a key difference in, in, in how we think about things too. Um, and so and I think it does pertain to the, to the trust issue um, a little bit as well.
1: Well, Dan, thank you. Can we finish on this note then? Uh, you have described America as a nation of heroes. And I take it that you mean by a hero, somebody who has a strong sense of duty and of a willingness to self-sacrifice. Uh, so uh, you by no means despair. You see plenty to work with. You're seeking to set an example and to lead in the area of ideas and and uh, and commendably, I think, in the way that you behave yourself. Um, if you are an ordinary American. How should you go about rebuilding? America as a nation of heroes, what do you do if you're an ordinary American looking at the the way the fight is being carried out, the denigration, the personal attacks, the lack of commitment to the national interest? And you want to make a difference? How do you be a hero?
0: Well, um, chapter two of my book, Fortitude. I'll go ahead and plug that. Um, it, it's called "Who Is Your Hero?" And first, you have to define what you believe to be a hero. And th- this is the problem with modern culture: is we've sort of we've sort of um, reversed that 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 definition. Whereas I think in the past we would have said a hero is somebody who overcomes adversity um you know helps the old lady across the street you know lets things roll off their back uh, has a witty response when somebody slaps them across the face all of these things right and these these classic hero archetypes um those have been reversed to elevate victimhood as heroism and uh when you're shaking your fist demanding that things something be done for you or that somebody else be taken down because because you feel that their success is uh is is, is somehow ill-begotten uh this has become heroism Right, this activism turned heroism, and it's not heroism. It's uh, resentment. It's bitterness. It's contempt, and um, and it it it, it 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 helps explain why there's so many um, hate crime hoaxes uh, in America. Uh, hundreds have been documented. There's obviously some very prevalent ones. You know, the Justice Smollett case. Why would some successful person do that? Why? It doesn't make any sense. Why would Why would Elizabeth Warren lie about her victimhood? in the past right and straight up lies about being a native american about being fired when she was pregnant none of this was true why lie about it that's that's the more interesting question and the the reason is is because of this this victimhood turned heroism kind of elevation and so that's the first thing define it and then live it um identify the attributes that make people truly successful not popular on social media with clicks not not activist successful that's not long-term success but real success how they treat people what they do to be successful. And so I that's why I always speak in terms of hero archetypes. I don't speak in terms of personal heroes because I've never, I've never really had any. That's just not how I th- thought about things. I just sort of copied people that did good things and it made sense. Um, you know, it's how I develop leadership skills and communication skills and um, how I developed in the military and, and how I develop now. Um, and, and then you, you see what they do when you live that and you live with that duty and um, and um you know you 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 think in terms of purpose. You think in terms of personal responsibility and mental fortitude, of uh, of of a moral compass that's that's derived from something higher than yourself, you know god. and um and uh, you put an emphasis on freedom and 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 equal rights. And I think that creates a good citizen. <laughs> you know primarily speaking, this is this is the basics of Western civilization, um these basic cultural foundations that, that have, have actually been put aside um, to a great extent.
1: Well, Dan, thank you very, very much indeed. You've given us some really valuable insights and we've seen a lot of the character of the man Dan. Uh, so uh, we do thank you very much for that indeed. And I wish you all the very best. And I hope for all of our sakes uh, that we get the best possible outcome in November in the United States.
0: I hope so too. Taking a vacation to Australia. Either way, i you know, it, the, the funniest joke I heard recently was, "I'm leaving the country if Biden wins. I'm also leaving the country if Trump wins." This isn't a political statement. I'm just, I'm just taking, a, I'm just taking a vacation. So you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, COVID might let you one day.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, love to come see you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. I appreciate it hugely. I do wish you all the best. Uh, that was. Uh, I love the clarity of your thinking and the graciousness of your approach. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Um, yeah,
0: i love, love to do it again. love to see you guys in person and meet it. Maybe a book tour. Uh, one day I'm going to do a
1: book tour, so very excited about that. <laughs> and I'll see if I can buy you a, a, a steak to match someone from Texas.
0: That'd be fun. That'd be fun. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.